We've just heard Violet read one of the most famous of all biblical stories, the tale of the so-called prodigal son. Prodigal meaning wastefully, recklessly, or rashly extravagant. That historic title for the story zeroes in on what Jesus refers to as the dissolute living of the younger son. Dissolute, meaning depraved, debauched, immoral, decadent. Take your pick of the synonyms. All of them make for a real fantasy heyday. As a result, the prodigal son has found its way into countless books and dramas from high art to low, the shenanigans of the prodigal have kept the story front and center for centuries because all of us are susceptible to fantasizing. And each of us has our own idiosyncratic version of what living in the prodigal's far country might entail. But the story is about many more things than the dissolute living of the younger son. Some say it ought to be called the story of the loving father because the action is really driven by what the father does. He willingly obliged his younger son's request for an early inheritance. He joyfully greets the young man upon his return. And he even goes out to be with the resentful, self-righteous older brother. Some say that the best title would be the first line of the parable. There was a man who had two sons. And leave it at that which has the merit of not over-focusing on a particular aspect of the tale, allowing nuanced content to unfold organically. But here's another idea I rather like. Why not call it the Great Party Parable? Personally, I think this comes closest to the actual heart of the matter because the party is both the culmination of the youngest son's trajectory and the instigating problem for the elder son. I think the party comes closest to the underlying theme, God's amazing grace. The father pleads with his older son, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. We had to party. What else could we do? Your brother was dead and came back to life. The great party parable gets to the heart of the matter, I think. So the stakes exposed in this story are life and death because the father says so. And that's consistent with what I've heard over the years from untold numbers of persons about their own life stories, how at a crucial moment in time, the stakes had been very, very starkly drawn for them. Some of you have told me your own stories about this. This parable has been famous for millennia because it reflects the actual human situation, our human situation. If I were to ask for a show of hands of the people in this virtual space who could identify with some variation of the prodigal's plight at some stage in their lives, I bet a fair amount of hands would go up if you were to be brave enough to admit it. But then if I also asked for a show of hands of those who more readily identified with the resentments of the older son, I'm guessing an equal number of hands would go up. Some might raise a hand for both questions, I suppose. But the thing is, 
Jesus reveals something fundamentally important here, important about the human situation. By the way, if you have ever wondered why the Bible has been the world's biggest bestseller since the invention of the printing press, here's one of the reasons. It captures the truth about the human situation. All of our questions and urges and ethics and relationships, our sins and triumphs and fears and hopes, that's one reason we spend so much time reading and wrestling with it. So, our story begins with the tale of an indulgent father and a young man who spends out his life in a wasted extravagance. Awakening among the pigs, he realizes he's as good as dead, and he concocts a humiliating plan to at least return to the ranks of his father's hired hands. He makes the right call in returning home. He wakes up and recognizes he's as good as dead. That's the meaning inherent in living among the pigs, animals considered the most unclean by the strictures of Jewish law. He could be no further from his true life and still draw breath. We recognize his instinct, though, the instinct to return to the safest harbor he knows when he's about to slip under the water. I'm as good as dead. I need to go home. But before the younger son can make his pathetic little speech, his father sees him from afar and runs out to greet him and restore him and throw the party to end all parties because the father also knows his son is dead and is now ready to live. And the father wants to restore him to life. Now on the other side of the party, we're introduced to the older son, the guy who's hung back and taken on the responsibility of the household. In psychological parlance, he's the so-called responsible child. He's the one who makes it all work. With melodramatic flair, Robert Farrar Capon captures the response of the older son. He makes a stagey scene nostrils flare, eyes closed, back of the right hand placed against his forehead. He gasps, music, dancing, levity, expense, and on a work day yet. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. He is not happy. Why this frivolity? What about the shipments that our, our customers needed yesterday? Who's minding the store? And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Elder brother rants, the fatted calf? Doesn't the old fool know I've been saving that for next week's sales promotion when we show our new line of turnips? How am I supposed to run a business when he blows the entertainment budget on that loser of a son? He became angry and refused to go in. And finally, therefore, he makes a proclamation. I will not dignify this waste with my presence. Someone has to exercise a little responsibility around here. And Jesus, willing to oblige him with an important audience for all his grousing, sends him one. His father came out and began to plead with him. 
This parable is about death and life. That's the arena in which grace operates. The essential situation it addresses is the acknowledgement that without a dynamic and vital relationship with our graceful God, we are dead. The two sons are two sides of the same coin of the human situation. The prodigal is attached to his self-indulgent worthlessness, and the elder is attached to his self-righteous resentment. Both are dead, if you will, and in their deadness cannot revel in the party unless or until they respond to their father's entreaties until they fall into the arms of grace. Until then, they can't experience joy born from their acceptance of who they really are and whose they are and where their life will actually be found. As the story is told, it seems the younger son discovers his deadness. The elder, by the end, has not yet discovered his. In this way, the great party becomes the litmus test of whether we are dead or alive. The father's joy tells the tale. Do we wish to share in the father's joy or not? And you see the irony for the elder son, given that, as the father says, son, you are always with me and everything that is mine is yours. Still for that, the elder's resentment means more to him than his father's joy. To hell with the party. I'll stick with the business of running the farm. Amazing grace works its magic in the land of the dead. So the elder son is as ripe a candidate as the younger. The story ends without answering whether or not he will finally accept the truth of the matter and share in the joy. And of course, that's just where the story began. Remember how Luke reported, now all of the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. And all the self-righteous, resentful types were grumbling and grousing and saying, Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them the great party parable. Now, friends, it's really important to recognize that this story is not intended as family therapy, but as spiritual therapy. This spiritual therapy strips us down to the essential dynamics of our existence, to the elemental matters of death and life. It takes us into the inner recesses of our most basic identity and to our fundamental attachments, which more often than not keep us from joining God's party. Discovering how we exist among the dead is one of, get this, the greatest blessings that can be given to us it's a difficult-seeming paradox, I know, but with that discovery, amazing grace then does its miraculous work, and we find we are home at last, joyfully feasting and celebrating as though there were no tomorrow.